I'm Sonia Morton Firth and you're tuned in to the Sonia Morton Firth Show. Today my guest is Jay Flynn. Jay went from being homeless to being awarded an MBE from the Queen. The problem with mental health is when you're, when you're not right in your head, you don't think straight. So you think that everything around you and everyone around you is trying to either manipulate you or not help you. You, know, you start not trusting anyone. Watch this interview as we find out how Jay survived two years on the streets of London, how we rebuilt his life, and how a pub quiz changed the life of millions. I went straight down to my wife and went, showed my phone when there's 150,000 people interested in this quiz, and she went, what have you done? Personally, I, I do still retain real optimism. Hey, just let me show ya. Jay, hello, and welcome to my home in Richmond. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a lovely, lovely home and a lovely view as well. Yeah, it is a beautiful view. Well, I'm really excited and so grateful that you're here today. Uh, and I'm going to have a great conversation. I know we've got <laughs> lots and lots to cover. Um, but before we get started, could you tell my audience who you are and what you do now. <laughs> so the, the, the sensible answer is I, I am the host of Jay's Virtual Pub Quiz, uh, which is a virtual pub quiz, Thursdays and Saturdays, YouTube and Facebook. It's what you'd expect if you were sat in a pub um, just with more chaos, more comedy, more errors, and doesn't take itself seriously. Um, it's probably the best way to describe it. I don't know how to spell. My grammatical errors are off the chart, but People love it, and they have loved it all the way through since the 26th of March, 2020. And I'm, I, I really want to go into that date and how we got there. But before we do, tell me a bit more about your journey, because you haven't always been a quiz master, have you? No, um, it's been... I'm 39 years old, and it, I, I've, I've had more life experience probably than anyone's had, you know, at 60, 70 years old. I, I fell on some hard times in sort of the late 2000s young child who was making stupid, silly decisions and through one thing or another, through a relationship breakdown and you know, being miles away, hundreds of miles away from home, mental health hit the floor and I found myself living on the streets of London and that was for two years and I lived on the embankment, um, Victoria Embankment, which I called number three, Riverside View, because I wanted it to be a home. Now you say that so matter of fact, um, but I mean to, to even be at that stage where you've ended up homeless. I mean, how did you get to that actual stage of, of being on the streets? The, the problem is when, and it's thankfully now, we talk a lot more about mental health. Um, but at the time, mental health was still very a taboo area. Oh, I'm struggling. Oh, I'm depressed. Those kind of things. I guess, especially for men, and not not to be stereotypical no, here. No, you are you are completely right. I mean, I remember about two weeks before. Um, I'd made that decision in my own my own head and my own space that I did try ringing a charity to have a conversation with them and the tone was very mm, why do you want to do that why do you want to and I thought well this isn't helpful at all so you know put the phone down and the problem with mental health is when you're when you're not right in your head you don't think straight so you think that everything around you and everyone around you is trying to either manipulate you or not help you you know you start not trusting anyone and that's the problem is that when you lose that trust of everyone around you who is genuinely and looking back on it now we're genuinely trying to help and support 
you just think, well, I'm better off on my own. And that's what I thought I would be. And I had no plan. And I thought, I'm better off on my own. So Had you run out of money at that point? or No, I, I still had I still had £80 in my pocket, um, or in my bank account at the time. Um, but it was just the whole point. I'd been living with different friends. I didn't have my own home, so I was sofa surfing. And I had a job. I was working. I was working in a pub. But I quit that about a week before I made the final decision. And... I, I, I can't even remember what the day was and what was going on that day that just made me go, stuff this, put some things in my bag and just walk out the door and see what happened. But I know within a couple of weeks that I decided in my own head that the world wouldn't, would be better off without me. It was not something that I want, you know, who would miss me? That was, that was my theory. And I couldn't even do that right. And it, it sounds really awful to say, but I tried, I tried over in a six month period, I tried taking myself from the world a couple of times and one of them I tried with some paracetamol and some alcohol and just ended up with a bellyache and the second time and this is the one that turned my head started to turn my head around quite a bit was I was sat somewhere looking down thinking who's going to notice but then in my head the empathy that I know I've always got and always had started kicking in well this isn't fair on the person who will find me this isn't fair on you know everyone who's got to clean it up and I thought no let's just go day by day then let's forget this stupid idea and let's see what happens because i'm always someone who works on the theory of law of averages if you keep doing something it's got to change so i joke about this with the quiz you know people want to get 50 out of 50 on the quiz it will happen it's the law of averages it has to happen at some point so that was my theory in my head was if i keep going day by day something has to change and something will happen that puts me back into a path into society but you got to the stage in life that you, you hated life so much that you, you did want to end it yeah. for me I, I was on my own they, I didn't trust anyone around me and that wasn't just you know the, the people I had in my life before I had moved on the street it was even just people walking down the street you know move out of the way what does that person want you, di you didn't have um parents, uh, friends around you that, that could I, take you in? I'd, I'd stopped talking to um, my mum and my sister and my brother about uh, about three years before any of this had happened. And I didn't, again, mentally didn't feel in the right frame of mind or to, to reach out and to, to get back in touch. And in my head again, I thought, well, they're not worried about me for three years, so they don't need to they're not worried about me now kind of thing. And I've since learned, obviously, that that was complete and utter nonsense. They were desperately trying to find where I was, where I'd been, you know, how I, you know, how I was really. And that, that was all resolved uh, sort of about three years ago. So I'm now back in touch with my mum and got a great relationship with my mum and my little brother as well. So, um, but I just, I just didn't have anything. I didn't have anyone to turn to. And when you find yourself in that situation, there's, a, there's the idiot's guide to everything apart from homelessness, you know, there's an idiot's guide on how to fix a car or how to create a website. There isn't a, this is an idiot's guide on how to be homeless and where you go. And, and yet you picked the streets of London, which um, I guess, and again, I'm not, no expert, would be quite one of the maybe hardest and roughest places um, to be. I didn't really think about it. I mean, I'm born and bred London. You know, I was born and raised in Wimbledon Park, beautiful area. I'd lived all around sort of Wimbledon and, and Merton, where I'm from. And for me, it was home. So, you know, I, I had a very tricky first six months. It was very hard coming to grips with, you know, trying to get a couple of hours sleep on buses or whatever it might be. You know, I mean, I, I used to, 
once I got over that sort of very dark, and it, that six month period went by very, very quickly. Um, but once I'd got, you know, I'd already got myself a sleeping bag with the last of my money because I knew I was going to need that. Once I got through that sort of six month phase and thought, right, day by day, I just basically, I settled myself on the embankment. And do you know what? The, the Victoria Embankment is the most beautiful place in the world yeah. to sit. And I go back there now and I, I'll still sit there now. And it's a great place to contemplate because... What does it bring back now? It's it's peace for me. Um, and it reminds me of a time where I didn't give a care in the world. Um, I'd get back there about half 11, 12 o'clock at night. No one around, but you've got the most beautiful sounds of, you know, the River Thames. You know, you can hear traffic in the background. You can hear sirens and everything in yeah. London. You can hear yeah. all of that. But during the day, during the night, it, it's quiet because it's a tourist area and the tourists don't go down there at the night. They're walking along the South Bank on the other side. They're not walking along the embankment. And then I always made sure that my body clock had got myself into a routine of waking up at seven o'clock before the commuters and the tourists started to arrive. And I'd, I'd be on my way. And for me, that getting up at seven o'clock in the morning, I was going off to do my job, which was walk, and it could be walk up to 18 hours a day to see what I could find. Could I find, you know, the odd bits of loose change or whatever it might be. I didn't sit begging on street corners. I didn't do any of that. I didn't, I didn't do anything illegal. I found, um, this shows you the, the time it was, an iPhone 3G, one of the first sort of smartphones, mm. and I found it. Now, I, if I was an unscrupulous person, I could have gone, I'm going to take that and find somewhere to sell it. I took it straight to the police station that was around the corner at Marble Arch and went, I found that on the street, um, don't and know whose it is. Did the police not ask you for your name and address? They said, could we take some details? There might be a reward in it. I said, I'm not interested in a reward. Hopefully it will return back to its rightful person. And away I went. You said just before when you were talking about you being homeless and, and you had not a care in the world. Wasn't, didn't you have so many things going through your mind? of, oh my God, I'm in this situation, how do I get out of this situation? No, because it, it sounds very weird, but to sort of, you know, to talk about it now, having, you know, been in it, but I, I didn't, because in my mind, there were, it was always, I was always heading towards a fork in a road. I'd kind of come through this realisation that it has to change. It doesn't matter what, what I do every day, something, you know, someone up there will guide me into whichever way I'm going to go. And it'll go one of two ways. Some Somehow, because um, at the time I didn't know anything about day centres, but someone will point me in the right direction and I'll come through it and I'll come off the streets and everything. Or my life will naturally come to an end. And I'd come to, I'd come to peace with that. It was, you know, if these are my final days, months, years, whatever it might be, and I spend them out here, well, so be it. You know, I, it, it, it is, I, I just came to that, it is what it is, because... For people to have a personality and to have a brain and a life and what have you, you, you need people around you to bounce off and talk to. I hadn't really spoken to anyone for six months. So my personality was gone. There was nothing. I was just a human being just wandering around. But I kept myself a little bit connected. So I used to listen to, I had a little radio, which I made sure, you know, pound shops are wonderful for getting 100 batteries for a pound at the time. So I had my little portable radio, digital radio. So I'd listen to a lot of radio. So I listened to Chris Moore's breakfast show on Radio 1 in the morning. I'd listen to the Now show on Radio 4 of an evening. I'd always listen to football commentary, Formula 1s, those kind of things. But that sort of kept me a bit connected. But I wasn't worried about where I was. And 
again, I mean, someone did say to me a, a while ago that, well, you're not worried you're going to get attacked in your yeah. sleep. Again, if that's what was going to happen, then that's what was going to happen. And I, I just genuinely had no plan and just took each day as it came. And what did you, did you learn anything about yourself? I mean, this was two years. This wasn't just a, a sort of a day or two or three days or some people spend a week on the streets to see what they experience. Like, this is two years, that's a long time. I learned I'm a lot more resilient than I thought I was, I was. Um, and resourceful as well. Um, little things like, and also, so if you, I mean, you know, we all take this for granted now. We've got money in our bank accounts. You know, some people might not have money. For me, I was relying on finding loose change and bits and pieces. And I might find a penny and then not find anything for a couple of days. But then I might find a pound. And then you'd start working out. So for me, I always like to keep my appearance right. Not now, I've grown a beautiful bit. But <laughs> back then, I always wanted to keep it sort of trimmed and, you know, again, fit in. So I'd sit there and go, right, okay, well, I need to get myself that. But I know I'll save 30p and I'll get some disposable razors. And that's the little things that I learned about myself that I could start moving and managing sort of money in bits and pieces and making sure that, you know, all right, I've got 15p here. Oh, I know what I can get with that. I can get a Swiss roll from uh, from the supermarket or, you know, back then, you know, custard creams and bourbon creams were like 15p. Oh, can't get them for Remember, that now. you can't get them like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what did you learn about people? I mean, did you have people pass you and um, talk to you or, or give you money or... No, there was only, out of the two years, there was only one person who did that. Um, Sorry, out of two years, only this, one person. But this was stop. because I tried to fade in and blend in that no one... So if you and I were to pass in the street, you wouldn't have known that I was a homeless person or anything. I had a backpack on with a sleeping bag, so that would have just looked like I was any other tourist or someone visiting London. And where I slept on the embankment, alluded to this before, at night, there's no one there. There's no one around. So it was, and then this is why I named it number three Riverside View, uh, Victoria Embankment, because it was my home. It was where I always went every night. And the only person, there was, um, towards the end, there was a jogger who would always come past on a Saturday morning. And it was always about the time I was waking up. So I just sort of, you know, as I was coming out of my sleeping bag, it was always a morning, morning. And then I think after a, a few weeks of this, he came past and he stopped and he said, oh, he said, look, go and get yourself a coffee. You know, there's a tenner. I was like, well, that's not gonna, the coffee's not going to cost me £10. Thank you very much. And he went, no, 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 you're not getting this. It's the gesture of go and get a coffee, yeah. but there's £10 and I, I want to help you. Um, and that was the first time that anyone had sort of even acknowledged, you know, my existence at that point, which to me. How did that feel when someone acknowledged your existence? It would, as I say, that my instant response was, well, no, coffee's not going to cost me £10, you know, I can get, and that's when, you know, no, I want to help. And after that, it was just the occasional nod, morning, what have you. But then within sort of three weeks, and I don't know whether it could have been that gentleman who pointed Connection at St. Martin's to where I was. I, I can only assume that that has to have something to do with it. Because um, not long after that, Connection at St. Martin's, you know, found where I was. And we then moved on from there, so... At any point, did you turn to drugs or alcohol? No. Um, for one reason, I can't stand drugs at all. I am the most anti-drugs person in the world. 
you know, when I was younger, 18, 19, I saw what happened when a friend of mine had their drink spiked and it was just the most horrific thing that I've ever seen. And thankfully, the people that I grew up with in, you know, sort of in where I, you know, 18, 19, 20, that wasn't the scene that, that mm. people got into. So I'm very, very anti-drugs, cannot stand them at all. I guess there's one thing to be anti-drugs and, you know, we're not sitting here and, and saying drugs are great, but I guess it's very different if you're sat on the streets and living in a, in a sleeping bag and but then, maybe again, want to take your mind away. But then again, I was I was on my own. It was just me. So, you know, even if I had thought about, I mean, same with, with alcohol. I mean, alcohol was expensive, so there was no way. I was always focusing on the what I needed rather than the, the luxuries, yeah. if that makes sense at the time. Um, I wouldn't even know where to start. Even now, I wouldn't even know where to start. You know, it's like, oh, right, today I want to develop a habit. I wouldn't even know where to begin. So, and that's quite a pleasing thing that I didn't have a drug problem. I didn't become an alcoholic or anything. I was just me. I was just a man wow. without a home. That is, that in itself is an amazing story. And I think if a lot of people think about um, people on the streets, um, homeless people, um, we think, well, what would a homeless person appreciate most? Mm. What would you have appreciated most at that time? Yeah, there is, that's the thing. I'm, I, I'm different to what, you know, there's so many different stories out there from different homeless mm. people. And for me, I think it just needed someone to just sit next to me and just say, and just talk. And because I, as I say, I hadn't, you get your personality from talking to people and having those conversations. I have no personality. When I walked through the door of Connection to St. Martin's, I was a shell. I was just a just a person. There wasn't anything in there. So and during that two year course, two years, your personality went because you didn't have the connection. Am I paraphrasing yeah. in the right? No, way? no, you're right. You're absolutely right because you know we we develop personalities by talking to people and communicating and you know finding interests and hobbies and stuff. And the only thing I had was listening to the radio and feeling a part of those. But I wasn't interacting with those people. I was just listening to them talking to me. I was listening to Formula One commentary or football, whatever it might have been. I wasn't having, you know, you sit in a restaurant or a bar with, with your friends and you start talking about the day's news or what's coming up or things. And that's where you develop your personalities. I, I hadn't had that opportunity. So for two years, I had barely opened my mouth. The only, the only very rare times that I did was lost tourists in Leicester Square. You know, can you tell us where Leicester Square is? Oh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, there's a tube station that way called Piccadilly. Jump on that, it'll bring you out of Leicester Square and you'll end up back here. But, you know, that, that was the only ever interaction that I had with people. And you never wanted to start a conversation with somebody? I No, I, I just, I hadn't, I'd, I hadn't spoken to anyone for that long. I wouldn't even, I don't even think I would have known where to start. So you were... To coin a phrase, I don't know, rescued by St. Martin's, that they helped you rebuild your life. Yeah. What was, what would you say, looking back, what was sort of the key factors that really turned your life around? They, they have got so many incredible services that, that Connection St. Martin's have as a day centre. Um, but the one thing that, that rebuilt, started the rebuild process for me, every Friday when the centre closed at one o'clock, we got taken to a football pitch. So it was a group of us, about 15, 20 of us. Um, and they, we had these coaching sessions that were run by Peter Mason and Chris Lampard, two of the most incredible human beings who worked for Connection at St. Martin's. 
And it wasn't just a case of, here's a football pitch, there's a football, right, go and have a kick about for two hours. It was, we turned up and we did training. And they supplied us with all of the kits so that we had our own, you know, trainers and everything that we needed. And for the first hour, we would, well, it started before that, so we'd get on the London Underground and go to where we were going, and we'd just talk. And we'd talk about football, we'd talk about the news, whatever it might be. And these are all other homeless people as well? Yeah. So these are, these are people from the day centre, and it's all free, so it's, you know, we'll, we'll pay for your travel, here's a travel card, etc. So we'd go every Friday, and we'd set up the combs between us, and we'd have structured an hour structured session where we'd learn... You know, this is how this is like movement, or this is you know. But it was all teamwork. It was all building, you know, that confidence in you. And then the final hour, we would have a game, and we'd put everything we've just learned into practice. So you suddenly felt like being part of a team. And they, all, the connection at St Martin's, had a team that was in a league at Russell Square. And I remember where it was because it was a beautiful place to play. So once a month, we'd have a match, and we'd play in a league. So we were training. And then we had something to work towards. And the team, again, was built up by Peter and Chris, who were you know, the, the, two, um, the two key workers. And the rest of the team was made up by homeless people. And it was so proud going up there. And you know, we won quite a few games. And you know, all, it was just, it, you just some, I just suddenly felt part of something. I was confident it was coming back. So I mean, that's interesting you say the word confidence and part of being something. Do you th think that was what you'd lost, um, you know, going back two years previously when you ended up on the streets? Had you lost that feeling of being part of something? Yeah, I, all of a sudden I had, you know, if I knew people by name. I, I, you know, could talk to, you know, we'd get on the train on the way down and it didn't matter which of the 16 people were there. I could have a conversation with any. And that, that took a few weeks to get into that swing of it. But those sessions unbelievably helped, you know, just find a little bit of me again to the point that I remember before when we were heading to one of the training sessions Pete took me to one side and said look we've got the annual 11 aside clients versus staff game coming up and I'd like you to captain the client side and I just sorry what he said you deserve it you've you just see how far you've come in six months from what you were like in those first few days when you walked in the door to where you are now you more than deserve the opportunity, and I'd be proud to. And we won five two, which is yeah, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> but it, you know, and there, there is still some footage of it um, that the connection that the Martins are trying to find that they can pass on to me. Uh, but I, I was I was the leader of a team and leading, you know, and having the respect from those people, along with the confidence of being able to do it. That's one of the major things that really helps in there. Let's fast forward this because um, I, I can see that, well, maybe there is a link. Maybe you can tell me if there is a link because um, you have, you're now <laughs> more famous for being a virtual quiz master. And I think the fact that you said, um, you know, connection and being part of something was so important. And you pretty much led a nation behind those two key principles. Tell me about the online quiz and how it all started. <laughs> well, it, it, it started because Thursday nights was my night out. You know, we've got a little and I've got a beautiful wife and little. And the Thursday nights was the one night 
that I could get together with my friends and go out. And we'd always go to the quiz. We are not a group of friends who like falling out of nightclubs at three o'clock in the morning, losing it the following day. We would quite happily enjoy a few drinks, don't get me wrong. Yeah. There were many, many hangovers on a Friday morning <laughs> at work. But we just enjoyed each other's company. And, you know, we always loved the quiz and challenging ourselves. And we had some great quiz teams that we played against and quiz teams that when I had the pub, we hosted. So... When uh, Boris Johnson made that the first speech saying, that's it, I'm shutting all venues down, my first response was, well, what on earth do I do on a Thursday night? <laughs> well, what am I going to do now? So, so this was back in March 2020, right? Yeah, so this was... the lockdown. This was um, sort of uh, Friday the 20th, no, Friday the 19th, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I made that announcement. I was like, well, what do I do now? So I was, I was sat there on the Saturday and I was just, just flicking through some things and I thought, I could do something online. I wonder if I could get the quiz teams around here, around here together on Thursday. You know, maybe like a Facebook Messenger or, you know, well, I can come up with an idea, but oh, stuff it. So I just literally went onto my own private Facebook and just typed out a little post that you know, said, this is what I'm thinking of doing. Um, feel free if you want to, because I've not got all the quiz teams on Facebook that I've played with and played against. So, you know, share it to those if you want to. Um, let me know if you're interested. Let's see what happens. And left it at that. And then on the Monday, Monday lunchtime, so a few days before the first quiz, but on the Monday lunchtime, I got a random message on my Facebook Messenger, and it just read, can you tell me more about your quiz on Thursday? Sorry. So I just sort of read this, and I, I did a bit of research, looked at the person's profile, I thought, we've no mutual friends. We've no, what on earth's going on? So I went back into the event for the first time since I'd set it up on the Saturday and there were 700 people. So you'd set up an event on Facebook? Yeah, set up the event just so that everyone knew what date and time, you know, my friends. And it had gone past your friends, past your friends' friends. Yeah. It had gone out. Yeah, so Monday lunchtime, we were sat at 700 people. I was like, okay. So a friend of mine said, oh, this is um, be about a thousand by later on this evening. I was like, well, you know, we'll see. So then we get start getting word that Boris is about to make this really big announcement that night. So I checked it about seven o'clock before we, Boris went on at eight, and it wasn't a thousand; it was ten thousand people were now interested in the event. Wow. Boris makes his speech; it goes up to twenty thousand on the Monday night. I thought, wow, twenty thousand. Uh, yeah, no, there's no sort of technology that I can do this with. It's going to have to be some form of live stream, but we'll work it out. So I went to bed the Monday night, woke up on the Monday, on the Tuesday morning, there's 150,000 people now interested. I was just like, I woke, I woke. How did that make you feel, 150,000 people? I was absolutely petrified. I just thought, what have I done? So I went did to Did you wife. think of, at any point, did you think, oh, I'm just going to say it was a joke, or I'm going to, I want to get out of this? No, I didn't, that, that thought never even crossed my mind. I, I went straight down to my wife and went, Showed my phone and went, there's 150,000 people interested in this quiz. And she went, what have you done? I went, I, I don't know. I need to start work on this and I need to work it out. But then my phone just lit up. I suddenly had loads of press were messaging me saying, you know, I work for this or I work for that. Can we interview? Can we find out more? And obviously the more press that got involved, the more people found out about it. So by the time the first quiz came round, that Facebook event had over 500,000 people interested in it. And it just, I was just, I was sat there on the Thursday morning just looking at the more and more people joining, more and more comments, more and more everything. I thought, thankfully, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to live stream it on YouTube, live stream it on Facebook and just leave the live chat on and everyone can put their scores in the end. We'll do it for fun. It's not a competition. 
how did it feel to get, because you've got, you've got an MBE from the Queen, how did that feel? I had to keep it a secret for nearly two months. Um, so I, about 20 minutes before I was due to go live on a Thursday night, I was set up and bottom right hand corner, I had this email pop up and all it said was a subject and it just said, cabinet office, please read. Oh, that can't be good, cabinet office. So I opened up the email and it said, you know, please read this letter that's attached. And I can't remember the wording off the top of my head now, but it's along the lines of uh, the Prime Minister has conferred the honour and it's been accepted and authorised by Her Majesty the Queen that we're going to make you an order of, a member of the Order of the British Empire. And I sat there and went, eh? Why? What, what, why? Because I'd had, there's, there's been so many beautiful awards and accolades and stuff. And for me, they're great, but... The, the, the connecting and bringing people together for me has been so much more important than any awards but, and accolades. But that's the very fact that you brought so many people together. I mean, you talked about um, listening to the radio when you were homeless and in that in that dark times. I'm sure there has been many people in the dark, dark times in lockdown. I mean, mental health, we know um, a lot of people suffered mental health more than, than the physical health uh, side of things. Um, so you you shone a light on people's lives when they needed it most. Yeah, I mean, I, I read these stories all the time and they are so beautiful to read. And that, that's why I, a lot of people say, why are you still going? And they, they are the reasons why, because when you're reading stories of my mum's stuck in Australia and getting up at five o'clock in the morning on a Thursday night to join us and play the quiz, you just sit there and think, I just sit there all the time and think, what, what have I done? that I've done something incredible to bring these people together that, and I do always think there, there would have been something else, but would it have had the same impact? And that's the question I always ask myself. And you, you can't predict, you know, what could have happened, but I, I for whatever reason did, and I'm so pleased that it helped so many people. What do you think the guy on the bench would have said if you'd said to him as you were homeless, you're gonna you're gonna have an MBE from the Queen and change hundred and eighty thousand people's lives. <laughs> I think you'd probably turn around and said, You're insane. Keep walking, <laughs> you utter and utter. Um I mean that's the thing, the reverse of that question is what would I go back and say to myself mm. then? And I, I've always said, Don't worry, don't panic. It, it it will sort itself out and don't be afraid to ask for help. And that's the one thing I never do. So if you were to advise or um, chat to another person that may be in that situation, in dire straits or hit rock bottom, maybe facing life on the streets, what would you say to them? Put your hand up and ask for help. Because that's the one thing, and I still, I haven't never learned from my own mistakes, but it's not as impactful now, but ask for help. And it's something that back then, as I say, started with mental health, it was very taboo to talk about, especially with men. Now, ask for help, don't be afraid. The way I look at it is if you were to go to a friend or a family member and say, this is the situation I'm in, help. If they're not prepared to listen or help, they're not your friend, they're not someone. Genuine friends will take you, wrap their arm around you and do everything they can to support you. So if you ever find yourself that you're gonna be in a, a really awful situation, just ask. What's next? What does the future <laughs> hold? Because we're, well, we're out of lockdown now yeah. uh, and things are opening up again. How do you see that changing? Um, we, we've got a few ideas. I mean, the one thing I've said from day dot is Thursday nights will stay where, where they are. 
because I'm not hung up on how many people are watching or, you know, there are people who watch who can't go out on a Thursday night. They can't go out full stop and they will continue to watch because it's given them that routine. So for those people and for everybody who watches on a Thursday night, Thursday nights will continue no matter what I'm doing. You know, it could be anything from something silly or whatever it might be. So Thursday nights stay where they are. Um, we're hoping to take it out on the road a little bit. So we're hoping to put a tour together where people, you know, we, I, in my mind, I get the opportunity to say thank you to people who've been playing the quiz. I know it's a lot the other way around, but we can go out and meet some people face to face. Hopefully in January, February, we'll be able to do that when we know things that will be really settled down. But for me, I want to take that one thing that I had from living on the streets of London, which is radio. And I think radio is such a powerful medium that is so overlooked that I'd love to find a way to break into that, to be able to, you know, I alluded to it before, the likes of Chris Moyles, The Now Show, all those things that I listen to, they have no idea the impact that they had on me and how much they helped possibly keep me going through those two years. And I'd love to, I'd love to be that person myself. Do you think the confidence that you gained perhaps over this last year has helped you now discover that purpose or that passion and do something? Yeah, and I also, I think I've got a lot more confident, but I also don't, I also, I, I'm not a fan of the limelight. I wouldn't, you know, I mean, I, I love the idea of radio because you've still got that anonymity. Jay, I've come to my final question, um, and that is, if you were to write a message in the bottle for future generations to find, what would the message be? Pretty much what I've said all the way through. Don't be afraid to ask for help. It is out there, and everyone will always help you. Jay, thank you so much for being a guest on my show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday, so hit subscribe and like and you'll get it straight into your inbox.